there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. Very excited about the guest that I get to bring you today. He's actually a repeat guest, been on here before. The last time he was on here kind of talking about uh, the farm-to-table movement, we kind of focused more on kind of a, a big-picture topic. This time, we just get to learn more about him and his awesome restaurants. This is Matt Moser. He is the executive chef at Sternella and Butterfish here in Omaha. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, I just want to say congratulations because the last time that you came on, um, I believe you had a child. It was within a couple days after the episode. Like, there was even doubt whether we would be able to record because it was like, oh, yeah, my wife might be going into labor. And I was like, yeah, that's more important than a podcast. But anyway, <laughs> congratulations. That's so exciting. How's, how's your little one doing? Good. He's uh, almost 12 weeks old. Uh, his name's Theo, and we had some complications for the birth, one of which he was breached, and we had an emergency C-section literally the day after our interview, but um, all those worries have surpassed, and uh, he's healthy and happy and uh, gaining weight like crazy, which I like to see. I love fat babies, so I'm happy <laughs> about that, and uh, yeah, all is well at home for sure. That's amazing. I'm really happy to hear that. So, um, in regards to this interview, I, there are so many things that I want to talk about with you. And as I was kind of preparing and, and looking into just all the, all the different aspects and things that we could talk about, I thought it might just make sense to just kind of go through your career sure. chronologically and kind of hit on some different things that come up throughout that. So I just want to start from a real basic level. Just how did you get into cooking? Like what drew you to this industry? Yeah, well, I'll try to stay on the chronological path, but my memory is sometimes shoddy. No so, worries, no uh, worries. Yeah, you know, as I touched in uh, our last interview with Kevin, um, you know, in high school, I took some home ec classes with Kevin and where you learned how to cook and sew and such. And uh, I just kind of noticed myself enjoying cooking from, you know, the start of those. And I'd always be at home now that I look back and I was the youngest of four children so my parents were kind of, you know, over parenting when I was, you know, 10 to 12 to 13. So I was left home a lot uh, alone. And I found myself just going through the cabinets and messing around with food and cooking and not so much eating it, but just um, kind of entertaining myself and, and figuring some things out. Uh, you know, and after that, I, after high school, Kevin and I, when our senior year in the summer, we went and toured uh, Chic in Chicago uh, cooking in uh, Hospitality Institute of Chicago, and Kevin ended up going, and, you know, I told my parents, I think this is what I want to do with my life, and they kind of laughed and shrugged it off, and my dad said, you know, you need to get a normal education, and I went to UNL for a couple of years and got a job at Old Chicago Cooking and found myself going to work more than actually going to class, and uh, I kept pushing on the fact that I wanted to do this, and I really enjoyed cooking, and I end up touring Western Institute, uh, Culinary Institute in Portland, Oregon, mm -hmm. and enrolling in there uh, in the fall of 2003 and graduated from there in 2005. And one of the um, requirements for graduating was doing an externship, and you could do it at any restaurant you wanted to locally or you know, anywhere in the nation. And I had a girlfriend at the time, and so I wanted to move back home, and I did my internship at the French Cafe. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, Tony Abbott was the owner and operator there, and he's a staple in, you know, the industry in Omaha and ran that place, I think, for 40 years plus. So I started there and worked there for a couple of years, which was, you know, one of the craziest places I've ever worked now that I look back on it. and Wait, why is that? I mean, Tony Abbott himself is a character, and, you know, I thought all restaurants were ran that way. It was literally a chapter out of the kitchen confidential of Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> he would walk into the kitchen smoking a cigarette and flick it into the dish pit and oh start his lineup wow. for the day. And it was just chaotic. I mean, people were drinking and, you know, partying, and I just thought that's how restaurants were ran. So when I... I worked there for two years, and I ended up moving to California. I had a buddy who lived out there in the city of Orange and had a house, and um, my high school buddies just kind of rotated and moved out there and moved back home. And I worked in Huntington Beach uh, in the Hilton Hotel for a year. Then I worked at a restaurant, uh, Cafe Rouge in Costa Mesa, for a year. And then I ended up moving back home and working at the French Cafe again as mm -hmm. the sous chef. And I think I was either 23 or 24 at the time. And I did that for about a year until they let go of the uh, executive chef who I had known for, you know, years and worked under. And at that time, Kyle Anderson uh, was the executive chef of V Mertz. And I went to high school with him. And one of my good friends was working there. So I started working Garmage there and worked there for uh, about a year and a half and, you know, worked Garmage and broiler and in the kitchen. And um, I just saw... My advancement there wasn't going to go much further than that, and I decided to take a job uh, with Flagship Restaurant Group as a sous chef, and mm -hmm. I ended up working with them for six years, I think, and I opened uh, four restaurants with them, three blues, and then Plank Seafood, and I opened uh, you know, Denver Blue and worked there for a year, and I opened Texas, uh, Dallas, and just worked there for three weeks getting it open, and then... Um, you know, I just kind of always wanted to branch off and do my own thing. And Nick Bartholomew, who I knew uh, from high school, he went to Miller West, I went to Miller North. We used to have some mutual friends reached out to me about Market House. Mm -hmm. And so I ventured off to do that. And, you know, Ben Maids had been consulting with Nick uh, to get it open. And Ben and I developed a relationship and Ben decided to leave Avoli and come there. So he and I and uh, Chase Thompson, who was my sous chef at... Um, Plank came along and, you know, we ran that for six or seven months till the explosion happened. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I had a, you know, a year off basically of paid vacation to really figure out my next step. Uh, thank you, insurance. And that's <laughs> how uh, Sternella came to be. And that's where I am now. Okay. And I want to dive into <coughs> Sternella and then we'll move into Butterfish too. But there's so much to unpack from what you just said. And I, I, I want to start from kind of a big picture in that you mentioned several times you left Omaha. You went to culinary school in Portland. You worked in California. You opened Blue Sushis in uh, Denver and in Texas, and yet you keep coming back to Omaha. Why is that? What is it about this place that just keeps drawing you back in? You keep going to different places, and yet you keep ending up back in Omaha. I ran out of money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, um, you know, I always saw myself coming back to Omaha and wanting to start a family. And when I was uh, with Flagship Restaurant Group, I um, started working with a friend that I had met uh, through music, now my wife. And so mm -hmm. we were... Uh, dating uh, for four or five years when I opened Denver Blue, and we had every um, 
anticipation of her moving out there, but she had got a job at ConAgra out of college, so that's why I moved back. Um, but, you know, it's just always been home for me, and I feel like the culinary scene has advanced so much in the last five to ten years, and I really thought I could come back to Omaha and, and bring the the skills and what I've learned and implement that into the Omaha food scene. That's a common refrain that I hear from guests and that it's really, there's been like this recent revolution in the Omaha culinary scene, you know, in, in the last decade or so. Why do you think that is? Honestly, I think it's um, just the generation of chefs that are here now. You know, we have a lot of old respected chefs that have been around for 30, 40 plus years, like Glenn Wheeler Mm -hmm. and uh, other names. But I just feel like our age group has really pushed the envelope and brought a lot of new cuisines to Omaha and just not serving meat and potatoes anymore. And we're just hungry for more. And we've learned a lot. And I feel like uh, obviously the food scene has evolved nationally and we're just kind of bringing that to Omaha now. Mm -hmm. I think Sternella... And, and butterfish too, but Sternella in particular brings something very unique and special to the Omaha food scene. Kind of, where do you see it fitting into like the giant Omaha culinary puzzle? What does it provide that maybe, not other restaurants don't, but like what what makes it such an important piece? Because I think it definitely is. Well, I appreciate that greatly. Um, you know, I think at Sternella, you know, we try to do multiple things, but mainly we're just trying to, reinvent comfort food things that Mm -hmm. people are familiar with while cooking within the seasons and trying to support as many locals uh vendors as possible we are not completely 100 percent farm to table but we do utilize a bunch of local vendors from produce to proteins and to dry goods too but i just feel like we wanted to be that um you know neighborhood joint in blackstone we were one of the first uh you know, kind of bistro style restaurants and the only one for that matter is still there to start in Blackstone. And we're coming up on our uh, start of our fifth year in February. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. I knew that jams had been a staple in that uh, Midtown area, which was Midtown when, you know, jams opened. Mm-hmm. But uh, and just wanted to bring that to Blackstone and just be a comfortable place where it was everyone could come and get a good meal and, and quality meal for that matter. Well, I think you've definitely achieved that vision, um, and, and we'll we'll get more to Sternella, but I I have to touch on the Market House, and I know that it's probably somewhat of a painful memory <coughs> for you, but like that is one of my biggest regrets culinary wise. This was before I really dove into the Omaha food scene, so I never got to experience the Market House. And looking back, I mean, you mentioned all the talent that was involved there. You've got Nick Bartholomew, who now owns Dandelion Pop Up and Over Easy. He was the co-owner. Ben Maids, who's the executive chef at Acarant and now at uh, Casa bon- Bovina yep. in Lincoln. You've got yourself. You've got Chase Thompson, who now owns and operates Saddle Creek Breakfast Club. I mean, that is just like an embarrassment of riches <laughs> when it comes to like culinary talent and like food minds. What was the experience of working with all those people at the same time like? I mean, it was definitely um, amazing. It was I learned a lot from each individual, and I don't think it would have ever had longevity just because I, you had too many executives yeah. in one small house. But uh, while it lasted, it was definitely fun. And not to mention, you know, we had Phil Cleary there, who is 
been with me for almost nine years. He started as a prep cook and he runs Butterfish now. Uh, Nick Munger, who had been with Ben at Avoli and moved to Canada and moved back. And he was a line cook there. And now he works down with Ben at Casa. And, you know, Josh Poe, who was Ben's opening chef de cuisine at um, Al-Karant. And now he runs Hunger Blocks. So we just had wow. a core group of guys that, you know, A, love food, love the industry. And we just had a, a blast. But like I said, I think it was just too many execs in one kitchen. And although that fire was very tragic, it might have been a blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So let, let's go to that fire. There, there was a fire that ended up um, taking down Market House early in 2016. It damaged the restaurant, forced it to close. There was a period of time where I think Nick had hoping or had hoped that it would reopen. Obviously, that didn't end up happening. Can you just kind of take me back to that moment for you as as all that's going on? I, I know you said, you know, you kind of had this paid year off and in some ways <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. But in other ways, I'm sure it's like really painful. Like as you're trying to pick up the pieces, just like where's your head at and what are what are you like thinking about in that moment? I mean, honestly, it was one of the craziest days of my life. You know, we were in the restaurant when the explosion happened and uh, I just remember our ears ringing and smoke being everywhere and like beverage napkins just kind of floating in the air. And it was just the most bizarre thing. And we had employees down in the basement where the explosion happened, one of our dishwashers. And she spoke very little English. I remember freaking out like, where's Anna? Where's Anna? And I run downstairs and she's just shaking. And I said, Anna, are you okay? And she just goes, Mateo, kaboom. <laughs> and I just knew that, you know, she was safe and I was happy about that. But uh, we just ran outside and, you know, it was absolutely cold day and M's pub was in flames and we uh, sat there and, and watched it burn. And we were kind of in this weird mood where we were, joking with each other but in the same point in the back of our minds we know we escaped you know death into a tragedy and it was a very eerie moment and uh we put a lot of work and love into that place and you know a self-owned restaurant you're the person you're the last call and so you're building everything from the ground up and i had always been an executive chef working for someone prior so to see all that hard work you know literally burn was Mm -hmm you know, very tragic and very hard thing to get over. So it was just a weird point in my life. Mm -hmm. So how do you pick up the pieces after that? In that year off, like, what are you doing? Are you, are you thinking about what's my next step in the culinary journey? Are you like so scarred by that experience that you are just like, okay, I need to get out. Like, I, I just can't get back in a kitchen right now. Like, where's your head at? What are you thinking about? Well, as I had mentioned, luckily we had a very good insurance plan in place. So we were able to pay not only ourselves for a full year, but every single one of our employees, our dishwashers, our servers, everything. So that was something that was extremely lucky to have in place. And I'm, you know, very grateful that that happened. Um, you know, the first month was just kind of wrapping my head around the situation, but like you had mentioned, you know, Nick, we didn't really know if it was going to reopen what the, the damage was, but we knew once the attorney stepped in, we, this was going to be a lengthy drawn out process. And, uh, although I wanted to, I know I couldn't sit around, you know, for a full year and, uh, just sit on my hands and not do anything. And, you know, Ben Maids and I, uh, for the first couple of months really wanted to open a place together. And Ben was almost a part of Sternella. He was really? at the meetings with uh, 
the contractor at the meetings with Green Slate and you know, he had realized that it was going to be a big restaurant and he didn't want that. He wanted a small restaurant that he could control. And so we parted ways and I continued to work on Sternella and uh, I needed to find a front of the house person. And, you know, my old business partner, Matt Carper, he and I worked together for six years through flagship restaurant group and he became my front of the house person. And so I just literally stayed focused on Sternella while, you know, the market house started to work itself out and we realized this wasn't going to reopen. The damage was too great. Uh, the attorneys were holding it up and it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Where the concept for Sternella come from? Was that something that you'd always wanted to do? You know, I mean, I think that market house, you know, like I said, Ben was consulting with Nick and I don't think they really know, knew what they wanted it to be. Like when Nick Bartholomew and his partners first initially took over, it was Vivace and they ran that for, I think, three or four months as Vivace, and then they closed down to remodel, and that's when I jumped on. So I had been working on this concept I named Belly. I really liked that name for a long time. So I had menus developed, and uh, I hate to say it, but a Pinterest board put together. (laughs) (laughs) My wife showed me how to work that. So, you know, Market House never really came to fruition and then saw itself through, so... I think Sternella is definitely an extension of what my vision was for Market House, and it was actually able to play itself out. So mm-hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but to this point, you hadn't gotten the opportunity to really branch off and do your own thing. Even at Market House, you and Ben were kind of like tag-teaming that exactly. operation. What was that feeling like going into this where like, you're the man? And everything rides on you. Success, failure, everything in between, it is on you. What is that feeling like? Uh, it's anxiety, pure anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anyone knows me, I'm my world's biggest critic, and I second-guess everything I do, and I really overanalyze everything, so it keeps me up at night. And, um, I mean, I think that's the biggest reward is seeing your work and the heart and soul you put into a dish and making people happy and reviews and such. And I don't think a lot of people understand that a standalone chef, <clears throat> standalone restaurant, I mean, this is someone's livelihood, their ideas, and they're putting themselves out there for judgment. So mm-hmm. it's nerve wracking for sure. So when you create a following from nothing and, you know, have good rapport from the community and, and followers and support, it's absolutely amazing. Now, Something that I think, just from talking to chefs and cooks and everything, something that I think sounds like so much fun to you guys is just like, when you start a restaurant, it's a blank slate. Yeah. That menu, there's nothing on it. You can put whatever you want on there. That's also really intimidating. Like, what is that process for you of like, okay, like, just where do you even start in determining, I want to have you know, a pasta section of the menu. I want a sandwich section of the menu. What appetizers am I going to have? Where do you even start conceptualizing all the different things that are going to go on there? Sure. I mean, I think it's a um, an even balance of what you love as a chef, what you love to eat as a chef versus what Omaha wants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we have evolved greatly in this scene, but it's still at the nut and bolts of meat and potato town. So... I knew we had to have a burger on the menu from day one, and Mm -hmm. we still sell the crap out of it. It's the (laughs) same burger for the last four years, and we're not going to change it ever because, you know, as much as Omaha evolves, you're still going to have those people when they go out to eat, they want their protein and their starch. So 
Um, I think it's definitely a, a nice even mix of that. And then honestly, it's, you know, cooking within the seasons and what sells, you know, mm-hmm. what trends and what people respond to. And um, so that's how we've kind of kept it. Like the burger will never go anywhere and the popcorn chicken will never go anywhere and the gooey butter bar will never go anywhere. It never should. Yeah. <laughs> and we had the Spetzel on the menu for three years and we just took it off like a two or three menus ago. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people were up in arms with it. But if you have something that's equally as good to replace it, they sometimes forget about it and move on. So. See, I was one of those people because I was like, I was a Spetzel devotee. I loved that dish. Whenever we went to Sternell, like I'm a person who loves to try different things on the menu, but like that was the place where I got Spetzel. And when it was gone, I was just like, oh no, like what, what do I do now? But then the last time we went, I had the short rib Agnolotti and I was just like, you know what? All, all is okay in the world. Like I, yeah. mi- I miss the Spetzel, but there's still plenty of good things to be had here. This is still delicious. Awesome. Um, so I think when most people think of the term chef, they're, they think strictly from a food perspective, but there's so much more that goes into it. You mentioned, you know, Matt Carper running the front of house. You've got to work with him and the service team. You've got to design this restaurant and this kitchen so it operates efficiently. You can get food out. All the stations are set up correctly. You've got to put together a team that can execute your vision at the same time because you're not putting together every plate. You have to find people that you can trust to do that. Just Can you just kind of give me like an overview of how much there is to do when you're opening a restaurant that goes beyond the food itself? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly the, the food and the cooking is the easy part, and it's you know, maintaining your employees. I mean, and right now, you know, Matt Carper has decided to branch off and not be in the restaurant industry anymore. And so now I've morphed my role into front of the house and back of the house. So, you know, there isn't a day that goes by that someone's not sick, their car broke down, mm-hmm. you know, what whatever happens. So it's just dealing with those personal issues on a day-to-day basis and stepping in and having to absorb uh, what position they were doing that day. So that's, you know, one of the hardest parts of this industry. But, um, you know, just the day-to-day operation of ordering and um, social media, it's just there's a lot more goes into it than just cooking, definitely. Mm-hmm. What was that learning curve like for you after after Matt departed and you assumed those front of house responsibilities? I'm still learning, definitely. I mean, I've just, I've always, I've been doing this for almost 20 years and I've been in the back of the house the whole time. So, um, you know, servers are different. They're different people than the back of the house. And I hate to say this, maybe a little bit more needy, but, uh, (laughs) you know, it's definitely a learning curve. But, you know, my wife has always told me that, you know, doing something that you're uncomfortable with and challenged with is good and you're going to be a better person. I've kind of kept that in the back of my mind through this whole process. I mean, I just don't really, uh, I'm just not good at small talking. So I just put myself out there and interacting with the guests um, has been, you know, probably the biggest challenge for me. And just the pace of the front of the house is completely different than the back of the house. So I'm just trying to get my timing down and learn all the positions of the front of the house from, you know, host to server to essay and to manager. Mm -hmm. What's your, What's maybe the breakdown, the percentage breakdown between front of house and back of house responsibilities now? Um, I would say it's almost 50-50. So, I mean, it's honestly the day, uh, it's not like, okay, I'm in the kitchen this day or I'm in the front of the house this day. You know, I could be cooking or prepping from 9 a.m. till 1 p.m. Then I'm doing invoices in the office. Then I'm on the floor later in the day. So, 
it definitely makes the days go by pretty darn quick. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned you guys have a menu that that changes seasonally. Um, I, I don't even know how many times per year. Probably what five or six times yeah, I would per say year, four to five. Just yeah, depends. something around there. I mean, obviously, not the entire menu is turning over, but certain items will leave, and then they're replaced by new ones that have more seasonal ingredients. The way that you're describing your days, you don't have a lot of just free time no. to be ad living or anything. Where are you finding time to like? recreate a menu and come up with all these new concepts yeah late at night um you know when i usually get home 9 9 30 i'll eat dinner take a shower and that's when i work on the menu but one of the positives in this transition is i have found more admin time to be in the office and uh, like i had mentioned earlier you know i have phil cleary at butterfish running the kitchen and then i have dane didier didier running the kitchen at sternella so those guys have really stepped up and taken a lot of pressure off my shoulders and given me the time I need to actually get some things done at work. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's so interesting and that I really like about Cernella is it's such a wide-ranging menu. There's so many like different things that you can get. You, if you want to go super simple, like you mentioned, you can get the burger. That'll always be there. You usually have a couple pasta dishes. Like right now, you've got a pot pie. You've got pork shanks. You've got a couple different sandwiches. Like... I'm just, I'm just so like, how do you even just like, if someone just said, give me like your, your menu, what does Sternella serve in one sentence? Like, what would you say? (laughs) Only one sentence. Yeah. You get one (laughs) sentence. That's all I'm giving you. Uh, yeah, we, uh, refine, uh, comfort food with global influences is how it sums it up. And like I had mentioned, it's, you know, like what we like to eat Mm -hmm. and what we're thinking about and where we draw inspiration from. And, you know, I think that's the beauty of, the day and age we live in where, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you're scouring through cookbooks, but now you have Instagram and uh, Google search and things like that. So you're constantly seeing what other chefs around the country, around the world are doing and being innovative with. And you're trying to soak that all in and, and make it your own and put something out there. And, you know, I, the latest menu uh, fish dish, our scallop with our curry and farro and chickpea dish Every night when I get off of work, I've really changed my diet. So I eat these steamed farro and uh, chickpea and broccoli bag from Whole Foods with a Amy's curry burrito. Mm-hmm. And so I got the flavors. Go, I'm like, God, this is really good. And that's how it kind of inspired that scallop. Really? Dish. Yeah. So I, it's just a lot of things that whether it's a meal at home and my wife has done some things that have inspired me too. So we just kind of draw inspiration from everywhere. So are you like... Maybe it's in your phone or in a notebook or something. Are you just constantly like keeping a, a like a running list of ideas that you just come across, whether it's Instagram, whether it's a cookbook, whether it's, you know, eating dinner with your wife, whatever. And then when it comes time to make a new menu, you kind of open that up and you and you run through and you say, OK, what's seasonal? How can I fit that in? Like how, do, how just how does that work? That's exactly how okay, I do it. There yeah. we go. <laughs> I just email myself constantly ideas and whether it's a full composed dish or it's certain parts of a dish or if it's just a protein it's just constantly emailing myself with the subject new menu so when it comes time to do a new menu i search new menu in my email and i start compiling the menu (laughs) nice (laughs) okay so now let's touch on butterfish um which is a more of a seafood and sushi um forward restaurant also in blackstone 
It opened in 2018, I believe. Yep. Um, where did so uh, Sternell has been running for a couple of years? It's established itself. Where did the idea for Butterfish arise, or how did you get involved with that? Uh, my good friend and one of my old uh, friends I used to work with, uh, Jose Vega, who's been the head sushi, excuse me, was the head sushi chef at Blue for, I think, 12 to 14 years, and he'd worked for them for 16 years. He and I developed a relationship while working together, and he was married to one of my wife's friends for a long time. And so one day he approached me and he said, I want to open my own sushi restaurant. Can you help me out and facilitate that? You know, get some contacts and whatnot. And at the same time, Green Slate, uh, who is responsible for the majority of Blackstone and our business partners on both concepts, had reached out to Matt and I and, you know, said they wanted to do another concept in Blackstone and they were thinking sushi and it was just kind of perfect timing between the two. And, you know, Matt and I ran um, Baby Blue together for almost three years. And when I had left, he continued to run Baby Blue and then ran uh, Downtown Blue and ran Flagship Commons. So we felt that between us three, we could put together a sushi restaurant. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> did it feel kind of crazy, though? Because, like, that normally when, when chefs have a second restaurant or they're connected to a second restaurant, I feel like there's a pretty, like – there are a lot of similar touch points. Like even if it's not a direct, you know, you're not opening a, a second location of Sternella, but it's like, you know, kind of a similar concept or a similar menu, but like sushi, it was in your past. So you're familiar sure. with it, but it's very, very different from Sternella. Was there any hesitation on that part to open such a different place? Yeah. I mean, definitely there was, there's always hesitation. And like I said, I second guess myself all the time, but I knew that Jose had been doing sushi for, so long and I had every uh, respect for that guy and his knowledge of it that he could handle that side so Jose is completely in charge of the sushi side of the restaurant and you know Asian pan-Asian cuisine whether it's Thai Indian Cantonese whatever uh, is one of my favorite cuisines to eat so I'm constantly eating it and thinking about it and I knew that um, we could put together a solid menu and like you had said, uh, even though it's a different concept and a different style of restaurant, we're using a lot of Asian ingredients and a lot of traditional Asian dishes, but we're applying a lot of French and Italian mm -hmm. techniques and kind of morphing and making our own. So, um, you know, where I don't, I think Butterfish is unique. It is a lot similar to a lot of the restaurants in this town that are serving the same cuisine, but we have our unique touch on it in that aspect. Mm -hmm. Is there like some excitement that comes with that as a chef as well, because you mentioned, you know, there's anxiety about doing something different, but at the same time, like all of a sudden, just like this whole new cuisine is like open to you. And you've been, you've been working on all these concepts for Sternella kind of, um, you know, staying within that realm. And now it's just like this whole new world is just like, now you get to play around with all these different flavors and all these different techniques. Like was there, was that part of the draw just that like, you got to play with a new toy essentially. Definitely. I mean, it was, we knew it was going to be a challenge, but uh, you know, I, I cooked a lot of Asian cuisine at home, but it really gave myself and Phil, my chef de cuisine, a chance to really dig into recipes and the core of it and understand the cooking methods. And it just opened up a entire new book of ingredients to us. Now that I've transitioned some of them over to Sternella and we're learning 
uh, a lot about Asian cooking and ingredients, much more than just, you know, ginger and soy sauce. Mm -hmm. What's an example of that? Uh, We use a lot of aged shoyu in a lot of dishes. Uh And uh, we've started creating our own chili paste and kind of a lot of preserved um, kimchi and playing around with that. So it's definitely opened the door to a lot of new dishes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask this question. And admittedly, to someone within the industry, this is probably going to be kind of a dumb question. But for someone outside of it, I think it could be really helpful in that you are the executive chef at two restaurants. I think when most people think of the term chef, they picture the chef in the kitchen, cooking, directing, you know, expediting, whatever it is. Obviously, when you're the executive chef at two restaurants, you, you can't be both places at once. So what, what does that mean? And like, what are your responsibilities at both restaurants when you have two different executive chef positions? Honestly, it's just overseeing and mm-hmm. it's giving complete faith and trust to your chef de cuisine to do their job and manage the people. So you went from being, you know, an executive chef in a regular kitchen, a standalone restaurant, you are the end all be all and you're overseeing all of your employees. And it's more or less just overseeing your managers and letting them do their work and not try to micromanage so much and step on their toes. So I am just constantly checking in with everyone and making sure that they're a, they're okay. And they're not freaking out and they're doing their duties. And, you know, if the dishwasher calls off, I'll help wash dishes. If the essay calls off, I'm running plates and such. So I'm just kind of there to help and oversee. Wow. How difficult is that for you as a chef? And I'm sure it's become easier over the years, but to transfer that responsibility to someone else and to have that trust in someone that, you know you're not going to be in charge of the restaurant that night. But the food that goes out and the experience that customers have, they are going to associate with you. How tough is that to build that? Maybe tough isn't even the right word, but like, what is it like to build that trust with someone where you can hand your restaurant to them and say, I trust you here. It was a really, really hard transition for me. And, um, you know, up till... Two and a half years ago, when Butterfish started, I wasn't like that. I couldn't leave the restaurant. I was there from open to close, and I had to make sure I was tasting every single dish and looking at every single dish that walked out the window. And that was the hardest transition for me, but I was honestly killing myself and hurting my home life. And I Mm -hmm. had put my profession first over my wife and my family for way too long. And uh, when COVID hit and... uh, I was able to have a Saturday with my family and be home with my wife and my son. I only had one at that time. It really opened my eyes what's important, and I had to, you know, give that trust trust to my uh, to uh, Chef de Cuisines to really be able to step back and be able to have some family life and let them run the restaurant. So it was definitely a very hard transition for me, but at the end of the day, it's made me a happier person. Mm-hmm. Now. Full disclosure, I've never worked in the restaurant industry. So when I speak of this, this comes from just discussions I've had with other chefs, with memoirs that I've read, with uh, documentaries that I've watched, things like that. But it seems like it's just, it is a, it's not even a job. It's a lifestyle working in a restaurant. You are there all the time. Even when you're not there, you're thinking about it. You have a family. You have a wife. You have two sons now that you love very much. How do you find 
and maybe this is a question that's unanswerable and you're still working on it, but how do you try and find that balance between owning and operating amazing restaurants and giving them all you have and at the same time finding time to be with your family and, and give them, you know, the life that you want them to have as well? I mean, that's one been the biggest challenges, but, you know, I basically ever since I came back from COVID, I've just was always worried about, and this is me just being crazy, like what people were thinking about me. If, I, if I'm working hard enough, do they respect me hard enough? Am I putting in the hours to show them that I will deck brush the floor with you at the end of the night? And that's how I was pre-COVID. But like I said, it put it in perspective. So I was just honest with my managers before I started. Like, look, I've devoted my life to my career in these restaurants, and now it's time to give some time to my family. So I'm going to make it a point to try to leave every night by eight o'clock. I know it's not going to happen every single Friday or Saturday, but if there's the opportunity, um, I'm putting you in this position and hopefully I'm paying you correctly Mm -hmm. and you're happy and you're satisfied and you understand that. And you know that when I'm in this restaurant, I'm giving it my all, but I need to have, uh, you know, separation and compartmentalize that. And then I also ask them too that, you know, I'm giving and putting faith in you to run this restaurant and, and, run your position. So if I'm gone and the restaurant's not burning down, you know, (laughs) try to make the right decision and handle yourself instead of texting me or calling me when you know that it's not a huge emergency. So we can always follow up with the next day. If a guest leaves unhappy, I can always try to track them down and talk them into it and shower them with gift cards. So Mm -hmm. just trying to separate and compartmentalize work life and home life. And you mentioned that's an incredibly tough thing to do. It's, it's just really, really hard to give up that control. What's maybe been the number one thing that you've learned that's helped you like, give off some of that control a little bit and learn to trust other people to carry your vision through? I mean, honestly, Phil down at Butterfish, I feel like he's my third son. Like He has just <laughs> impressed me greatly in the last year, and we've had our hiccups along the way, but um, we've had a lot of come-to-Jesus talks, but he has just continued to – impressed me with the specials he's been putting out and taking responsibility and ownership and having that and seeing that like makes me realize okay this is achievable you know there's someone out there who cares as much about my concept as I do and treats it as their own so it's honestly finding the right people and investing in them every time I do an interview I tell the person I'm interviewing I need someone that can help me grow and I can help them grow Mm -hmm. that's my biggest thing so and how much pride, and maybe pride isn't the right word, but maybe just like, maybe joy? I don't know what the exact right word is, but I think you'll get where I'm coming from. Like, how much joy does it give you when you see someone like a Phil mature into someone that you can trust? And you see them really taking responsibility and, you know, trying to create new dishes and maybe coming up with, you know, new ideas that even you hadn't thought of before. Like, how rewarding is that? I guess that's the way I want to say it. Like I said, I mean, it's honestly awesome. And, you know, I, the compliments I've given him, he's told me it's almost brought him to tears. And just it, it's been awesome as from a friendship standpoint and a professional standpoint, watching Phil grow and to the chef he is today has been awesome, rewarding, whatever you want to call it. It definitely brings a smile to my face. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Jake Newton from V Mertz on here and. He, he said something really interesting to me that I, I think there might be a parallel here. He said that when he came back to Omaha four years ago and took over V Mertz, he wanted to be 
the best chef in Omaha. He was thinking about James Beard Awards. You know, he, he wanted to be the best possible chef that he could be. And he said just at some point there was a shift for him where that's not his goal anymore, where he wants to instead make V Mertz the best restaurant. Like the, the spotlight shifted off of Jake the chef to V Mertz the restaurant. Sure. And it kind of sounds like, I, I don't know if you went through something exactly similar, but kind of along those same lines where it's not about you having to be in the kitchen and running everything, but now you're kind of the overseer and the restaurants are the MVP is that kind of along the same lines as your maturation as a chef and as an owner? Definitely. And, you know, the reason why I've always wanted to branch off and do my own thing was a, to branch off and do my own thing and have my creative expression. But also this industry is tough and it wears on you. I'm, I'll be 37 uh, next week. And, you know, I just, I have a podiatrist doctor now and (laughs) I'm getting old and it wears on you. I've been doing it for a long time. So, you know, I got and wanted to do my own thing because I knew I couldn't be a 55-year-old line chef, an executive chef working for someone. This was my only way out. So when I started this, I knew that, you know, originally it might be about me and I might be in the spotlight, but, you know, to have longevity and have a career and be able to be home, hopefully, with my family, I needed to put Sternella first and bring that in the spotlight and you know, have people like Phil and Dane who come up and respect me and want to work for me and make Sternella better. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, th- this is kind of a random touch point based, based off of everything that we talked about, but it's it's something that I'm really interested in. You went to culinary school in Portland, and we mentioned that. Kind of, what is your take on culinary school? Because I feel like there are really two camps of sure. people. Most people, or not most people, but some people say that it's really important to have that structured training. And then I feel like there are other people who are just like, yeah, that's great, but it's so much better to just work in a kitchen and learn as you grow up. Just kind of, I guess, what's your take on <clears throat> culinary school as a concept? Honestly, I think it's about the student that's enrolled and where they are in their career. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I had worked at old Chicago and old Chicago only. So I could bust out a sampler fried platter <laughs> yeah. and a half like crazy. <laughs> but I learned the basics from making stock to how to cook eggs. And I had a French chef in culinary 101, Jackie Bonet. And he was like five, three, but he was super passionate about caramelizing your bones for stock and little things about that, you know, that were instilled in me. And I learned I still apply to this day. So like I value culinary school greatly. And like, I think it is, you know, you can get through culinary school with a degree, no easy, but, or easy rather. It's about how much you put into it and how much you care. And that's how much you're going to get out of it. So I think it's a huge building block uh, for a lot of chefs, but that's not saying that someone needs to go to culinary Mm -hmm. school. It's about who you worked for and what restaurants you worked at and, how much you're putting into it and how much you're going to get out of it. And you can get a culinary education from the right chef if you work for them long enough and you're listening. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I think it's so dependent on the situation, on the individual, like you mentioned on where they're working, you know, you're probably not going to go into fine dining if you come up in the old Chicago kitchen exactly. or something like that. But, but yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, there, there are definitely pros and cons to each situation and you clearly gained a lot from culinary school. You, you mentioned a couple things, you know, like, you know, caramelizing the bones and stuff like that. But like, maybe what are some of your, when you look back, what are some of your top takeaways from culinary school that you learned 
that you don't think you could have just learned if you just would have stayed working in kitchens? God, you're testing my memory again. Um, you got this. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a corner instructor that asked me to uh, scrub a mop bucket uh, at the end of one class. You know, I cleaned it, and I thought I did a pretty good job. And he came over and, you know, tore it apart and was pulling out little nooks and crannies and corners and told me that, you know, cleaning is attention to detail. And mm-hmm. I've always kind of taken that when I'm cleaning that, you know, the harder you clean and the more often you clean, the easier it's going to be. And the more detail you pay attention to, the cleaner it's going to be. So I've always kind of taken that <clears throat> um, throughout my career. And then, you know, Mies and Plaus, just being organized and ready for battle, everything in place, everything has a place. And, you know, working harder and working not and working smarter, not harder. And just being organized and really thinking about service, the way you lay out your station, the the knives, the tools you have on your station have every purpose to execute and present the food in a timely manner and with quality. So just being organized and, and prepared, it was instilled in me in culinary school, and it was a French culinary school. And so mise en place and just being ready for service, I've just that was instilled in me throughout school, and I've carried that on my whole career, and I tried to uh, instill that in my in my employees. And I had a new guy start a couple weeks ago, and I had said to another guy who burned something, did you have a timer? And that new guy said, I don't use timers. And I said, in my effing kitchen, you use timers. I don't care <laughs> yeah. how good thing you think you are, but, you know, timers are there for a reason. They're mm-hmm. there for a reason. And no matter who you are, you're a human being, you make mistakes. So just kind of accepting the fact that, you know, you're not better than a timer, and a timer's there for a crutch and for, uh, you know, something to – be the same every time you put it out and it needs a timer. So Mm -hmm. what is your take on the current temperature of food media? Because right now I think there's a lot of, there's just the way that I think kitchens and chef life is portrayed on TV, um, in, in movies. It's the, like it's kind of portrayed as very glamorous. Sure. I think there are a lot of like celebrity chefs and superstar chefs and you can flip on food network and, Oh, here are all these smiling personalities, you know, gathered around one plate and they all just rave around about the food. But that is so different Absolutely. from what the life is actually like. I, I mean, just kind of, what are your feelings on that? Does that bother you at all? Or is it just kind of like, okay, it's fine if that's what the public thinks. It's not reality, but that's whatever. Like, just kind of, what's your take on that? No, I mean, I think it bothers me to a certain aspect because I think it breeds uh, certain expectations that aren't true. And a lot of green uh, employees that may have never worked in a restaurant that went to culinary school and that's their only exposure to the industry plus you know the media they just kind of have this false sense of reality and I mean it's a grind that's there's no other way to put it the hours are long you're on your feet and uh it's not pretty and uh it weighs on you and has a lot of mental health issue effects mm-hmm. and so uh, I think it's completely different but you know that's the way media is and it puts a gray area on every aspect of life. So it is what it is. And I think people that are in the industry know better. And uh, if you don't, you're going to get a wake up call really soon. So I'm obviously not asking for like any particular names here, but have you had to have tough conversations with some of those green employees that you mentioned where you got to sit them down and tell them, Hey buddy, 
you're not on the Food Network. Yeah. You're not on Top Chef. Yeah. This is this is real life. Like this is how it's actually going to be. Yeah, and I've had a reputation for being an a hole for a little bit. And I've kind of <laughs> dialed that back a little bit, but I think that's the biggest thing when it's your restaurant. And like you had said, you know, when someone comes into Sternella and they get an overcooked steak, they don't think that my employee cooked it. They think I made it because my name's on the menu. So, um, you know, setting the standards and expectations from day one. And if I find someone kind of has that mentality, then I'm going to ride them pretty damn hard until they don't have it anymore. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Matt. We're we're running low on time here, but I've got a couple more questions sure. before we get you out of here. And they're kind of wide-ranging ones that I really like to ask anyone in the restaurant industry. The first one is, what is the most or what is the thing that you think most people misunderstand about kitchens, restaurants, chef life, whatever, that you wish they understood? Oh, man. I think what we touched on earlier that, you know, it's our livelihood and it's our ideas and our thoughts and our passion that we're putting on a menu and putting it out there for people to judge. So tread carefully next time you write a Yelp review and understand that, you know, we're giving it all we have and we're human and we're going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of my biggest takeaway from that. Yeah. And then to end things on a positive note, what is your favorite part or what is the best part about working in the restaurant industry? Honestly, it's the camaraderie of my staff and building those relationships and just being able to be in a small, confined place with the people who share the same passion as me and talk about it and live it every single day. I love it. Well, I, I thank you so much, Matt, for, for coming in today. And, and I just want to give a shout out to, to all the listeners out there like, Go to Butterfish and Sternella. These Thank are you. fantastic Omaha restaurants. I'm a big fan of Butterfish, but Sternella especially. Like, that's one of those places where, to me, if someone comes in from out of town and they're like, where's a place where I can get, like, fantastic food with, like, a Nebraska flavor? Like, it's not a chain, you know, it's not just a steakhouse or whatever. Sternella would be on my short list of places that I would send them to. I really think the food that you can get there is so unique and so different than you can find at 99% of the restaurants in the state. I I just, I think it's really special. And I think people need to go experience that. If you want to just go plain, you can get the burger and you'll have a fantastic burger or you can get some risotto. You can get, if you're listening to this soon, go get the short rib Agnolotti, like do that, please. It is really, really good. But Anyway, well, that means a lot coming from you, Dan. I appreciate it. Yeah, I just I wanted to throw that plug in there because I really do believe in those restaurants, and I I thank you so much, Matt, for coming on today and for for giving me the time. Yeah, you too. I appreciate it. Thank you. And Omaha, as always, thanks for eating with us.